Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast. Really excited for this episode. I think we're going to have a little bit of fun. Not a lot of fun, just a little bit of fun. Uh, First and foremost, before we dive in, quick reminder, the listener survey. Have you taken it yet? We hope you will. While you listen to this podcast today, you can actually take the listener survey. It'll help us be better, stronger, faster, smarter. We sound like a Kanye song, but honestly, we'll see what happens. With me this week, one of my most trusted co-pilots in the Five Things flight log, Amanda Davis. Hello, Amanda. Hello, hello. Hello, Kenny. And because everybody needs a day or two to restore the brain, we are missing our friend Beth Rolfs this week. But we are joined by Juliana de Tezwa. Hello, Juliana. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Amanda. I am so excited you're here, Juliana. We're going to have so much fun. Juliana is a podcast vet. She has been on a few other podcasts of ours at the Gray Group. So really, really excited to have her here. Juliana, this is your first five things, right? It is my first time joining longtime listener. Oh boy, first time, long time. Now we're a real podcast. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, with that, let's dive into the five things. Amanda will be talking about something near and dear to my heart, which is Facebook banning Holocaust denial content. I'll tell you a little bit about Twitter's decision to reverse the block of the Biden New York Post article. Juliana will tell us a bit about Snap adding sound options. I'll tell you a little bit about Instagram announcing influencer partnership disclosures. Nothing like a good conversation about disclosures. And then Amanda will take us home and talk a little bit about our friends from Fleetwood Mac and their newly minted classic viral hit dream. So with that, welcome to the five things. Let's dive in. Amanda, take us away. All right. We're coming in hot on the first topic this week. Um, And Facebook announced that they've banned any Holocaust denial content for the first time. Um, I think the kind of backstory here is that there was a lot of conversation around this when, um, you know, it first came up about two two years ago or so, and Facebook and, and Zuckerberg himself released a pretty controversial statement, I want to say in 2018, um, basically not taking accountability for needing to ban the content. Um, I think the exact quote was they didn't want to ban people for getting it wrong, um, which is such a light phrase to use on something so important. Um, so obviously that set a lot of people off. This year, they've decided, you know, to take a stand and, and make a, a couple of algorithm, algorithmic changes to the platform. I think also, like, of course, there's that should have happened and it shouldn't even be a question or something that we have to make a statement about. But the thing that kind of upsets me is that this comes after, and I don't know that a lot of people know this, but the upcoming Sasha, Bar- Sasha Baron Cohen movie, um, the new Borat, actually does talk about Facebook and Twitter's role, and and the actor himself talks about their role in the rise of anti-Semitism. So it again, it's great. Like he should have done this years ago. Like there's nothing to argue about here. It's just it's disappointing that it's always on the back foot, and it's always after they come under attack for these things. I just would uh, we say this every week. It could probably be the tagline. Would love to see some proactivity from Facebook. 
Juliana, what do you think? I mean, I think it's really interesting because every time Facebook tries to do something they should do, like you were saying, Amanda, it feels as though it's really just to distract you from something they didn't do in a different area. So as much as you want to award Facebook for making the right decision, it's usually with a caveat of, yes, but don't forget that other terrible thing they did this week. They are a... um um, they've done so much in society to change the way that we connect and build community and share information with one another. And on the flip side, they are so inherently flawed and broken. And I find it so hard to pinpoint a place to start. And and I always preach this notion of they're trying, you got to give them a moment, they got to go one thing at a time, and you can't you can't diminish act one because they haven't gotten act two yet, but it just feels like when it's always so reactionary that it just shows a glaring lack of self-awareness in their role that they're playing in this broader issue. It the, also says, oh, sorry, Kenny, I thought you were done. Yeah, the, the, the Anti-Defamation League has said on numerous occasions that anti-Semitism, especially in the last 24 months, is at an all-time high. As the last group of Holocaust survivors pass away, uh, you know you have to you have to remember that if you were, um, if when the war ended, you were five. That means today you are eighty. So the the youngest the youngest survivors are now at an age where, uh, you know, we're about we're about to lose all firsthand accounts of what happened during the Holocaust. Um, and, and that is so scary because you hear this disinformation out there and you hear that the, the channels are now finally getting to the point where they're trying to fix it. Um, but there's all of this, all this now this Holocaust denial is in, embedded in people's minds that have been experiencing and seeing it for years. It, it's scary. Um, and that's just, you know, from one person from one background, from one point of view, there are plenty of other genocides and acts that have that have you know plagued and ruined society for generations, and and it all just needs to be cleaned up, or these channels are never going to be able to survive. What were you going to say, Amanda? I was trying to say it also too, like subconsciously says that Facebook does not make these decisions out of the betterment of humanity. They make these decisions when they're pushed against the wall, when they're between a rock and a hard place, when really the kind of outrage is spewing over the edge of what they feel comfortable with. And I, I, it's, it's disappointing. And again, to Juliana's point, like this isn't, this shouldn't be things that, you know, every six months you're making one or two updates to, to combat something. It should be in the DNA of the way that the platform works. Um, and it's clear that's still not the case. So back to, back to getting upset about Facebook every week. <laughs> I always think about the fact that Facebook's mission is to create a more open and connected world. And in turn, what they're doing is creating a more divisive and divided, a more divided world, which is, is frustrating. Um, all right. Well, that was light, light. one to start. Seriously. Um, let's go to the next thing, which is Twitter reversing the block of a Biden New York Post article. So the basics of this one are uh, there was an article that was put out by the New York Post about Hunter Biden, uh, some of the 
the, the contents of the article and uh, where the sourcing for the article came from became under question. Uh, Twitter went out and Facebook went out and actually banned the article from being shared. Uh, and then after a ton of pressure uh, from various places, they were actually pushed back and they did a 180 uh, and allowed for the article to be used. Uh, this is something that's very fascinating. Um, Joan Donovan, who's the research director of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School, said, policies are a guide for action, but the platforms are not standing behind their policies. They're merely reacting to public pressure and therefore will be susceptible to politician influence for some time to come. Uh, which I think is perfectly in line with what we were just talking about. Uh, these are, the, the platforms are ill-equipped to deal with these issues. Um, and it's not just Facebook, Twitter's having the issue as well. Um, so it, it just is, you know, I, I think it's worth reading the New York Times article about this and we can try and share it with everyone. Uh, but as we get closer to the election, as more information starts to come out there, it, it's really difficult for the channels to stay neutral um, in their policies because they are constantly on this seesaw reacting to pressure from both sides. Uh, it's a really fascinating moment in their evolution, not a dissimilar conversation from what we were just having. Uh, Juliana, Amanda, any thoughts there? Oh, Juliana, raising the hand. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, what I think is interesting about that and it really connecting to the, the Facebook story is this sort of confusion about the definition of neutrality in media and social media where it's this impression that if you allow anything to go and you kind of both sides everything, that that is true neutrality versus trying to take on actions that are for the betterment of society. And oftentimes these social media outlets, I think, especially Twitter, because they do try to be a little bit more um, pronounced with their attempts to, to uh, dissuade bigotry and to remove harmful content from their, their platform, that they are constantly going up against this you know, perception of bias that is largely coming from people who want to encourage that type of misinformation or encourage that type of bigotry and having to decide between uh, should I use my platform for good or do I want to come across as a neutral party? And it's really a question of what we want our social media sites to, to service us uh, to what we want our social media sites to do for us, and more importantly, what role they should play in society, given that they're now playing such a big role in politics. Yeah, and the thing, I read a lot about this story because I think what's really interesting, I read every every outlet's take on it, which obviously are totally different. There's a lot of people frustrated, um, I think, from the Republican Party because they feel like this story didn't get the reach it should have because of this policy enactment that didn't happen, for instance, when Trump called the soldiers losers and suckers, when his tax returns came out. they Their point of view is basically that this was a story that was almost their their piece to put out into the world before the election. 
I fundamentally, this kind of upset me because this is someone hacking into the son of a person running for office to extract like some controversial content versus the things that the other candidate is actually saying and doing. Like those are two fundamentally different pieces of information that do deserve to be treated in different ways to me. So it's like to that however, point, Juliana. Whoa, go ahead. However, while I agree with you. We need to make a determination as a society if these channels are tools of partisan communication or are they neutral sites to deliver the news. And that those are those are two different those are two different and fundamentally um divergent things, right? Like we I think after the election all the social media networks should get together and have a consortium about their role in public policy, politics, and communications when it comes to the news. They, they need to set a, a standard to figure out what their role is in all of this because whether it's a universal disclosure, whether it is something that allows for uh, people to make their own determination and educate themselves based on what they're seeing, but we're at a point now where that you, you can't cram platform level uh platform level policy changes 13 days before the most consequential election in US history it, it just isn't going to fly it's going to it's going to create more divisive conversation so the, whether it's the piece about the holocaust denial or the thing about hunter biden or the thing about you know, suckers and losers or the thing you know that they're all um, leaves on the same tree, uh, and and the tree is diseased, and um, so so it gets to a point where you just need to uh, take a beat and figure out what to do. The problem is no one can take a beat right now because the stakes are too high. So um, I imagine everyone on this podcast feels and believes the same thing about where they want this election to go. I think. Um, so, but this is, this is sort of a bigger, this goes beyond November 3rd. Um, and I, I think we'll still be talking about this on November 3rd next year, unfortunately. Um, with that, I'll, if you want to respond, that was a pretty heavy comment for me. I don't know. I think, I, I think everyone's kind of, <laughs> let's talk about something more fun. <laughs> so with her, with her inaugural thing, uh, Juliana, tell us a bit about Snap adding sound options. Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, happy to, to, to break the tension a little bit. So last week, Snapchat announced that it's launching this sounds functionality, um, pretty similar to TikTok and Instagram Reels now, that allows users to add licensed music to their snaps. So that can be before they create the snap or while it's playing while they record. And what I think is really interesting about this is that a lot of the articles talking about this are framing it as though Snapchat is launch has launched sounds in an attempt to battle with TikTok, which I don't think makes a lot of sense when you think about really what makes TikTok TikTok. You know, it's this opportunity to create content that's seen and viewed and engaged with by strangers. And essentially you get this opportunity to become uh, almost like a, a minor celebrity through your your uh, your performance or your show of talent. But that's just really not what Snapchat is about. You know, obviously Snapchat is just about like these candid slices of life that you're showing people you know or kind of know, um, just to kind of keep them updated. So what I really think is interesting is to understand how Snapchat Sounds is going to be used. In my personal opinion, I think it'll just be a way for people to 
engage with Snapchat a little bit longer in creating videos that they'll then post on different platforms. So their Instagram stories, maybe their Facebook, just really trying to understand the way that Snapchat sounds is going to, to come to life. I love this and I love your description of it. I think that Snap is the most misunderstood channel in the social ecosystem. And I think the way you described it was spot on. And the, I'm using air quotes, social intelligentsia thinks that every single channel is out to eat every other channel's lunch. And I think Snap in particular is one that sort of operates in its own space. Um, and they do it in a way that's really authentic to who they are. They're, they And this is just another way where they can double down on their desire to be the best friends network where you can create the most authentic, fun content to who you are and share it with your friends. And the everyone's looking for a conspiracy. They're out to get TikTok. They're out to, they don't want to be TikTok. They're Snap. They want to be them. Um, you know, I always like to bring it back to brands a tiny bit. This is an opportunity for brands to be able to create more content on Snap with more um, creativity. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for all our creators out there. Uh, Amanda, what do you think? Juliana, what do you think? I tend to, I mean, you know this, I tend to think more philosophically as all these features start rolling out. So I just had a moment as I was reading about this too, where I was like, just getting a flashback to the 90s and the 2000s when, uh, you know, we couldn't listen to music for free or put music in in videos for free and all you know Lars Ulrich suing that like the idea of like free accessible music that we can share and and do what we want with that's so new this decade I don't know again I'm like a zoom out person on this but it's just funny to think about it if you told us 20 years ago that we would be able to do whatever we want with whoever's music that we want that's cool that's so creative and just like so personal you got one person to thank for that Sean Parker. Um, <laughs> all right. What, Juliana, sorry yeah, I cut what, you what off. I was going to say to that, um, uh, what I think is a really interesting point that you're kind of uh, tapping in there, Amanda, and I think uh, Kenny as well, when you're thinking about the, the sort of role for brands and marketers, it's the realization of just how powerful music is in connecting people, especially the younger generation. You know, you look at all of these songs that became popular because people use them in TikTok because people wanted to use them as references and memes. And it's this realization that, you know, with so many different, uh, you know, kind of niche communities that people can dive into, the holding part is the music that they share. And so, you know, if brands can tap into that, uh, it would be a great opportunity to really humanize themselves and, and seem more relatable. Absolutely. Spot on. Love that. Well, can't wait to check out Sound Options on Snap. I think it really is a great ad and I'm a huge Snap fan. So if you don't use Snap, what's wrong with you? Uh, Moving on here, uh, Instagram announced influencer partnership disclosures. And this is really interesting, uh, at least in my opinion. Uh, Whether or not you can tell that the content that's coming from an influencer is a part of a paid sponsorship or something they're doing on their own is really critical. Marketers more and more are trying to make things feel native or organic or that they didn't come from a brand. Um, and, and it's a bit deceptive. And I think we as marketers, if we have a good idea, uh, you know, we don't need to resort to the tricks, right? We can come up with ideas within the rules and regulations so that the consumer is protected in a way. Uh, so after a, a team in the UK that focuses on competition and markets, 
uh, vowed to do a bit more uh, on this issue. Uh, it's sort of growing uh, in fervor. And Instagram plans to tackle the issue on two fronts. First, they're looking to add a new prompt, which would require influencers to confirm whether they've received incentives to promote a product or a service before they can actually publish the post. And then Instagram is also developing a new algorithm to detect potential advertising content uh, and then alert relevant businesses informing them about the rules of the platform. So good to see Instagram taking a step here. Um, I think marketers will be frustrated because they are constantly trying to find ways to make things look like it wasn't a paid promotion. Uh, but the channels are getting wiser um, and our uh, public servants, our government, if you will, are getting wiser as well as they look to protect consumers. Not a lot to discuss here, but opening it up to the group if there's if there's any thoughts on this. Yeah, I would say my question though is in the past year, two years, as a Instagram influencer mentioned any product by name that they weren't getting paid to promote. I feel there's so much of a recognition of the fact that Instagram is a paid opportunity cash cow that it, it just I I guess it begs the question of if people have been fooled in the past couple of years. Yeah, I think it's becoming more and more common that people see that content and they're like, oh, duh. Uh, but I think the platforms, you know, policy is policy. And we're either going to disclose that these things are done as ads or we're not. And whether the the public knows it needs to be protected from it or they realize they're being protected from it, uh, I think it's important for these rules to stay the same because if you move policies around, it's it's sort of like the slippery slope, right, of what we talked about at the top of the podcast. So in my mind, you know, I like that they're cracking down on it a bit, even though it makes our jobs harder, uh, because I think it shows a consistency in what they believe. Um, you know, there's a difference between Amanda posting about, you know, plant food and trying to just have a dialogue about plant food, um, you know, versus Taylor Swift talking about plant food. So uh, I think it's important. I also, I think it just promotes more of like that alternative way of working with the I-word influencers versus just slapping a product in their hand, write a post, success. Um, it, it does promote a little bit more of that conversation. Talk to them, listen to them, listen to the community, you like have have more of a presence as a brand versus just, you know, buying up a, a, a static billboard on on a social media platform. So I'm I'm happy to see it. And I'm hoping that it prompts deeper kind of relationships between influencers and brands. Cool. Well, Amanda, take us home. Oh, my goodness. Um, if you have not heard about the Fleetwood Mac viral TikTok that went out into the world, I'd say, what, now three weeks ago? Um, I won't give you the backstory because I think that you've probably seen it. Um, and since then... Stevie Nicks has posted a version of it. Um, the other member of Fleetwood Mac that people don't remember his name have posted a version of it. And as of this podcast, about one hour ago, Lindsey Buckingham, who is another member of Fleetwood Mac, has also posted a version of it. All of this to say, last week on the Billboard charts, Dreams, or is it Dreams is the song? Dreams went into the Billboard Top 10, which I, again, one of those things, if you told us a couple weeks ago that was going to happen, it would be a very confusing time. I'd also imagine the TikTok audience 
might not be huge Fleetwood Mac fans. This might be their first time hearing it. And there's just something beautiful and timeless about that band and that album. So I love this story. It's one of those feel good, feel good things. I love, I love things. it too. I also love uh, TikTok's reaction to instantly cutting it into a spot. Um, I think that's, you know, spot on. I think Ocean Spray, fine. <sighs> fine i mean the 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 gift is nice and the intent was right um it seemed like they were not prepared and scrambling but would you be um i think we would be i would hope we would be uh what this what this shows me though as as a lesson for our marketers who listen uh you have to roll with the flow of culture and dialogue on these channels and you have to have an understanding, even if a channel is not a part of your ecosystem, of how to leverage it when something like this happens. Whether you are on a channel or not, there are conversations happening about your brand. And your ability to understand that consumer behavior and that dialogue is critical. It also reinforces the need to have a non-matching luggage content strategy uh, because what works on Instagram won't work on TikTok, won't work on Twitter. Uh, so I think this is a case study that will be dissected for years to come uh, by social strategists and channel planners trying to figure out the right way uh, to activate against something like this. Uh, it will be talked about for a long time. Juliana, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is also a really great case for the ever-shrinking window of relevance. So, or rather widening window of relevance and shrinking uh, timeline of nostalgia. So the idea that in order to speak to, to Gen Z, you have to talk about the most current rap song and the most current dance and, and kind of have to be chasing them at the heels to understand what's important to them it, it, uh, with respect to what's new, like that's not really what's in play anymore. You know, they have so much exposure to different sources of content from any time period, essentially. So the ability for something a little bit older to be reintroduced and for them to latch on is, is a lot more possible and plausible. So, you know, seeing that as an opportunity to go backwards and pull something forwards versus just exclusively trying to tap into the newest thing. Spot on. Uh, on another recorded program that Amanda and I do, the comment section for Social Media Week Plus, tune in every week on Wednesday. Um, we talked about the impact of Earth, Wind & Fire song September and how every September 21st, people recreate and do things all over the internet to celebrate that song. And there's a whole new generation of people on TikTok who have been waiting for a year to jump in on, the, on September 21st and post a video. I think this reinforces your point, Juliana, that the song is a classic disco song. Uh, but it's gaining new relevance with new generations as they see trends that are happening on social media. But that's not going to change them. You know, the same person who posts about September or who posts about dreams is going to also post about, you know, Megan the Stallion or, um, you know, something else that's happening in culture. So the, the, the time continuum has shrunk because we have access to things for so many different generations. Uh, and, What's old can be new. What's new can be new. Uh, there's just, it's awesome. I think it's a great time to be young and consuming culture, frankly. Yeah, it's great for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll be 17 scrolling TikTok. <laughs> well, 
I want to say thank you to Juliana and to Amanda for being here this week and being a part of the Five Things Podcast. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, ideas, please send us an email at podcasts at gray.com. That's podcasts at gray.com. We really appreciate you listening. We really appreciate all the time you give us each week to be a part of this banter. And with that, I encourage you, stay safe, stay smart, stay social, and don't forget to vote. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Petty and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.